You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon, you've got Living Writers, and I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I am so happy to be talking to Susan J. Douglas via technology. Susan, welcome. Welcome to Living Writers. Hey, thanks for having me, T. Uh, Well, it's great to talk with you. Susan, are you in Ann Arbor? Are you in Ann Arbor like I am? I am in Ann Arbor just like you are. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we're, we're talking about your latest book, In Our Prime, How Older Women Are Reinventing the Road Ahead, out with Norton this year. And before we, before we get into the conversation, I'll read the short bio in the back, and we'll go from there. Okay. Susan J. Douglas is Catherine Neefe Kellogg Professor of Communication and Media at the University of Michigan the author of the groundbreaking works Where the Girls Are, The Rise of Enlightened Sexism, and The Mommy Myth. She lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Well, I guess we gave away part of the bio even in chatting right beforehand, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, well, Susan, you've been, a, you've been a writer all, it seems like, all your life. Also writing a, a column uh, for In These Times... Um, and and now senior editor, can we talk about your writing life? Were you always writing, even as as a as a kid? Mm, you know, not not really. Uh, you know, I mean, like every teenage girl, I had a diary, which you know, if you go back to it now, you're like, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but you really did keep one, though. Like I had, did. That's- <laughs> I did, and I wrote kind of funny stuff to my friends, uh, but, uh, you know, like writing, like, aside from what was assigned at school, I didn't really get into writing, I, and of course I wrote a lot in college, obviously, but it, again, it was school assignments, and I've always liked to write, but I didn't really get into, um, you know, more cultural criticism and more journalistically styled writing. Uh, until after my first book. But my first book, which was a a history of the rise of wireless telegraphy (laughs) and how wireless telegraphy evolved from that into radio, um, was really based on my dissertation. And when I wanted to convert it into a book, I did read um, a lot of my mentor, one of my mentor's books, and he was an historian of technology and, and a pre- pretty technically uh, engaged and informed one, and also an economic historian. His name was Hugh Aiken. But he, he took these subjects that could seem like so, you know, technical and dry, and he was just a beautiful writer. And he had a way of writing about these topics that was very inspiring to me and also something to model. Mm. So, you know, in my first book, I really wanted to make it be 
um, even though it was an academic monograph, to have the writing be more engaging. And I am proud of that book. But once I was done, I wanted to write in a different voice. And I had been interested in the images of women since college. And so I um, started, I wrote this column uh, that was based on a Vanity Fair issue. And uh, Diane Sawyer was on the cover as, you know, the most beautiful, blonde, accomplished, you know. Mm, yes. Uh, oh, boy, <laughs> you know. I those things, yeah. <laughs> that we should all aspire to. And inside was a profile of Donna Rice, who was the woman that, um, you know, Gary Hart had got caught with uh, on the ship, the monkey business. Right. <laughs> right? Ah, uh, the 80s, you know. <laughs> the 90s. So... So what I was really struck with, because I, w I wanted to start doing some more journalistic writing and cultural commentary, and what I was struck with was the enormous class biases in these two pieces, that Diane Sawyer was held up uh, as such a goddess. It was such hagiography. And Donna Rice was so put down as mm. trash. Uh -huh. And... Uh, I I found it deeply offensive, and so I wrote a piece about this, ah. and you know I sent it around to various and sundry, and you know there's this uh, I don't know if this was Maxfield Parish you know the very famous um, uh, editor yes um, who was Tom Wolfe's editor and yes. uh, and he said never let a uh, rejection stay in the house overnight <laughs> <laughs> send it out again <laughs> send it out again i sent it to women's magazines i sent it to the new republic and to the you know, nation to... i sent it to the nation nobody nobody and so i was like oh well so much for that and then i got a phone call from in these times which i had sent it to which is a progressive magazine out of chicago and they were like oh my god we're so sorry this got put into the wrong mailbox and we want to publish this right away. <laughs> and so, oh. so they did. And then they wanted more stuff from me. And so I started publishing intermittently with them, doing cultural uh, commentary uh, around the news, politics, feminist issues. And as a result of that, I was then able to get pieces in Ms. Magazine. I was able to get pieces in The Nation, um, some book reviews in The Washington Post. You know, it's, as you know, you know, the first one or two is the toughest. And, you know, and then after that, if you have, you know, some samples you can send out, uh, you can sometimes have, have some more luck. And so in, uh, and then I began writing for The Progressive in 1992. So that's been kind of the history. And meanwhile, you know, I had returned to this interest in the images of women. Ah, uh, yes. And, you know, and so on the one hand, I started writing and I had been very influenced by a lot of kind of high theory, you know, film psychoanalytic theory and feminist film criticism. And so I started writing this book about the evolution of the representations of women in the media from, you know, and, um, you know, and it was, it was fine as an academic, you know, influenced book. And, but meanwhile, I was writing these other columns that were pretty mouthy. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, you know, 
a, I sent a proposal for a different book to, to this editor. Uh, well, I by this time I had found an agent. And so she sent a proposal around and this uh, editor at Random House said, you know, I, I'm not really interested in, in this proposal, but you know these articles that you've got here in that tone? Can you write something uh, about the images of women in that voice? And I was like, can I do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's been, it, was, it sounds like it's something that you had been wanting for so long and had been building inside of you. But, but, it, so, but it's interesting to think of it because at first, it, the idea was first you were packaging it in this, this academia sort of uh rapping right <laughs> or or voice and and so it was hard to break out of that even though you were you know exercising your writing chops and your your voice of <laughs> uh, in columns and you know it's just so interesting because you would think that oh it you it wouldn't matter you wouldn't be constrained but but sometimes there is that and you broke through it well you know i um I didn't know if um, uh, if I could sell this Images of Women book as, you know, a trade book. Um, and actually, I, le I left out a, a, a step, which was I did, you know, send, and this is a really important lesson for writers. I did have a proposal for Images of Women. And it was, you know, basically kind of a standard, you know, we had Leave It to Beaver and June Cleaver and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And um, there was an editor at, I believe she was at Pantheon. And she said, okay, I'll meet with you. So I went and met with her and she tore it apart, tore it apart. Mm -hmm. She said, I know about June Cleaver. What are you telling me that I don't already know? What is your argument? What is ah. your argument? And so I left and I was like, she's so right. You know, I don't have an argument here. It's often really good, as you know all too well in, in, in your line of work, <laughs> to get kicked around, you know, to really get kicked around and say, this isn't working. This isn't working. Go back to the drawing board, back to the drawing board. And so, um, you know, and then Paul, this fantastic editor, Paul Golub, uh, who edited Where the Girls Are and also edited Enlightened Sexism, he was the one who said, wait, you know, can you write this in a different voice? And so here was this guy. I think Paul was probably in his, you know, late 20s, you know, white guy from Harvard in his late 20s who just saw in, he saw in this book the potential, you know, for it. Uh, if I used the different voice. So I went back to the drawing board and I realized that there was an argument in it and I had not made it clear. And that argument was that because it was really about growing up female with the mass media and how the mass media represented uh, women, you know, in the 50s, 60s and beyond. And I realized that the argument I had was that the media was both women's worst enemy but in some ways it was also our best friend because it began to deal with with the 
pre-feminist rumblings in American culture in the 1960s by giving us television shows in which women had magical powers that <laughs> men begged them not to use. Like Bewitched. <laughs> like Bewitched. And Genie. I, I Dream of Genie, <laughs> Manny and the Professor, The Flying Nun, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, you look back at that stuff and you say, why do we get these shows at this particular time? And so then I had an argument because mm -hmm. in some ways the media, you know, the, of course there was tons of sexism in the media and misogyny, but they also had to deal with shifting social times. And in many ways they, um, they did uh, ridicule uh, and stereotype feminists, but they also made feminism possible. So then I had my argument. And so, uh, because I already had like 120 pages of this academic book, you know, I had to go back and tear it apart, but I had something. And so I rewrote that book in like a year and, um, and had a blast doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd really had fun doing it. Well, and I think there was a review by the Washington post where it's like the funny and most brilliant, you know, piece of academic writing I've ever read. Yeah, that was Carolyn C., who was a wonderful writer herself and whom we lost recently. Um, it was a lovely review. Yeah, it was great. Well, you know what? Let's. It seems like the seeds then of In Our Prime, how older women are reinventing the road ahead. <laughs> well, they've just been with you since the very beginning, Susan. Done. Well, well, you know, I've been, as somebody who came of age, I mean, for, first as a, you know, as a girl in the 50s and 60s, when, you know, we were told that we, if we went out with boys, we had to act dumb. And, uh, you know, if we played tennis with them, we had to lose and, you know, all of, the, and if, and we were just supposed to go to college to find a husband and then we would you know, go into some kitchen and make mac and cheese, you know, that's what we were raised with. And so uh, I was not really um, jiggy with that. <laughs> <laughs> so there was that. And, um, you know, and then the women's movement happened. And so I had been in, in college, I actually did a slideshow independent study for my advisor about how women were represented in you know, the mainstream magazines of the 50s and 60s, time, uh, Life, Ladies Home Journal, you know, on sexist representation. So I, I had already done that. And that interest in the images of women in the media just stayed with me. And so once I did Where the Girls Are, these books have kind of tracked my life and my autobiography because yes. uh, I finished Where the Girls Are when I finished Where the Girls Are, my daughter was four. And as I had been raising her as an infant uh, and a toddler, and I got one that didn't sleep. And so she was up at 4.30 for the day. And, it, you know, it was gruesome. So, you know, when you're waiting for the Today Show to come on, you know, <laughs> you know you're desperate. So, you know, I'd get to the supermarket with her at like 7.30. 
and you know sweatshirt with baby spin up on the shoulders and my hair barely combed and you're at standing at the magazine racks and there used to be all these magazine racks you know at at the checkout counter and there would be Kathy Lee Gifford or some other celebrity you know bragging about their miracle baby and their perfect home and there they'd be inside their house with white rugs and white sofas right <laughs> and a toddler <laughs> you know yeah. and so you know we were surrounded by all of these images of perfect motherhood uh in in so many of these magazines and a lot of them were these celebrity moms and it made me really angry so uh a friend of mine and I decided that we would uh, write about the images of motherhood in the in the media, and that became the mommy myth. And uh, we came up with this term, the new momism, which was about the kind of intensive mothering that was being foisted on women, and how women were being guilt tripped if they didn't do that intensive mothering. So that was, you know, that book came out when I, you know, had was raising a child, mm-hmm. and. The next one, Enlightened Sexism. So now with Enlightened Sexism, my daughter's a teenager Mm. and she's watching the most appalling dreck (laughs) on MTV. You know, these, oh, the, I mean, horrible, you know, sorority life and um, all these um, spring break shows and Mm. uh, oh, awful, you know, and that were so sexist. And, you, you know, we just like corrode your brain cells while at the same time, you know, sort of at the 10 o'clock slot. And this is before the networks completely lost their purchase on things. So this was in the first decade of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. But I was getting, you know, Grey's Anatomy. I was getting surgeons and lawyers and DAs and cops. I was getting all of these very powerful aspirational figures and she was getting all of this, like how to be hot and what brands are best. <laughs> and so I thought that was a good topic to write about. So that was enlightened sexism. And now, of course, that I am a woman of a certain age, uh, I have wanted to write about how older women are represented in the media when yes. when we are at all, you know, and how gendered ageism which is very much being challenged in our culture, is still alive and well. And so a lot of the things that I've written about, you know, in terms of the representations of women, you know, have tracked where I am in my own life. And and then that also, then Susan, you've been actually very um, open about that. Um, I, I need to read your other books now, but <laughs> but in our prime, you're you are in it throughout and and making and talking about your own autobiography your own lived experience mm-hmm. and but you know yes and um and what i and my friends have gone through both positive and negative uh but i also didn't want it to be only focused on women like me i'm a very privileged woman you know i i teach at an elite university I've got a good job, Uh, you know, I'm white, so I'm not followed around when I go shopping, you know, when I used to go shopping in, you know, clothing stores. Um, And I, there are tens of millions of women my age and slightly younger and slightly older 
who are not doing well and they're right. they're discriminated against they have very little money they don't have any retirement and so i really did want to write about those women as well yes yes and well and yes completely and and you you write about it clearly also to show that things are still more things are trying to be taken away from the this this like older women who are perhaps on the margins um who didn't have that much to begin with um and in some ways are invisible i love how you say like there has to be like a visibility revolt and not just by celebrities you know everyday women need right. to enact a visibility can we talk a little bit about that yes um so i uh as you note did write about i mean we are at this turnstile moment in our in our culture when it comes to older women because there are more women over 50 than at any other time in our history and uh they're uh healthier they're working longer uh they're living longer for the most part and uh and yet there is still uh gendered ageism that seeks to uh, fire these women when they get to be too old or, you know, people not listening to them at work anymore. And so there is that. And in, in this mix, we do have prominent women, mostly celebrities, although also politicians yes, and, and public figures who are not going off, you know, into the sunset, right. at, you know, at 55 years old, you know, these are, these are women like Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin and Meryl Streep and Judy Dench and Hel Helen Mirren and Sally Field and Bette Midler, Nancy uh, Pelosi and Nancy Pelosi and Maxine Waters and Oprah, you know, um, who, uh, uh, refuse to say, oh, okay, you industry say, because I'm over 50, I'm worthless. And the industry in part, the, uh, you know, entertainment industry has had to listen to these women because they have fans who are their age and will watch their movies and watch their TV shows. And, uh, and there are politicians like, um, Pelosi and Maxine Waters and others who, they have absolutely zero reason to retire. You know, they're, they're from everything I can see, they're full of energy and uh, angry about a lot of what is going on as well. So we've oh, had Susan. these. Oh, yeah. sorry. Susan, because, you know, when listening to when you were saying that about Nancy Pelosi, too, it strikes me that it seems like maybe a year ago or so, um, many, many people were actually and, and younger um like new congresswomen and or or younger uh, politicized women were at one point um, wanting to Nancy Pelosi to potentially step aside at a certain point, and we we had that kind of thing that she seemed to weather and get through and to be able to uh, regather the the power necessary. Um, and then we have Ruth Bader Ginsburg, where I feel like um, many Americans. Um, myself included, have just been like, for like years, willing her to hold on, it seems like, <laughs> you know, um, and, and that's two, like two powerful women in different ways as well, like, well, different um, areas. Absolutely. You know, and the thing about Pelosi, it, from what 
everyone reads about her is she is one sharp politician. She knows what she's doing. And so, yeah, she had to meet with all of these young people and young women in particular who thought she was too conservative, thought she should step aside, thought there should be a new speaker. And she met with all of them and she won that vote. And after she won that vote, boy, did she show who was possibly the best person in the country to take on Trump. (laughs) You know, she was amazing. She was fearless. And I think those, I can't speak for those young Congresswomen. I don't know them, but boy, um, I hope that they were happy that she was the speaker because she really did an outstanding job and fearless, absolutely fearless. And, you know, the St. Ginsburg, a lot of people didn't know much about Ginsburg until really late in her life. And it was when Ginsburg started writing these kick-ass dissents, yes. you know, that these young women were like, oh my God, this woman, read this dissent, read that dissent. And they started posting them and, you know, labeling her, you know, the incredible RBG. And okay. she, you know, and she became a, a pop culture icon and folk hero late in her life. And then people discovered this amazing career of hers where here as, you know, tops in her class, you know, tops in her class could not get any law firm in New York to hire her, you know, and, and, and then she becomes, you know, one of the most important voices on the Supreme Court. So yes, we have seen. And for women. And, right, oh, Susan, and, and especially and like a side door since we weren't able to have the ERA ever ratified, um, a way to get um, women through a side door so that we're part of more part of the Constitution in this more perfect union. Yeah, and she was really shrewd about the cases she chose too, you know including one with a stay-at-home dad. So she points to discrimination against a man as a way to point out discrimination against women. I mean, she was so smart. And um, so, you know, on the one hand, we do have these very powerful uh, icons of older womanhood out there on the screens of America whether it's Pelosi or Ginsburg until we lost her recently, uh, Jane Fonda, Tomlin, etc. And that that's great. And they are, they speak for us and they act for us and they inspire us. And a lot of everyday women are like, yeah, I don't want to, you know, be forced to retire at 55 because my 30-year-old boss doesn't like me, you know, he thinks I'm too old. And so, um, you know, many women are working past 65 and even from uh, 70 to 75, and they are enacting Mm -hmm. visibility revolts in the workplace and in the world. So that's great. On the other hand, if you turn on the nightly news or any public affairs programming, where are, unless they're victims of fires or something, where are the other older women? The older women who the whose Social Security and Medicare, Trump and the Republicans want to cut. Where are the older women who are just figuring out how to make ends meet? Or the older women who may be somewhat comfortable and they're out there volunteering 
you know? There's a whole spectrum of older women who are completely and utterly invisible on the screens of America unless they are celebrities or, you know, powerful public figures. And so it's like they don't exist. And there there have been a lot of studies, and I, I can't uh, quote exactly the details right now, and I don't want to thumb through my book, but the, the um, uh, Annenberg West, the Annenberg School at the University of Southern California has done a bunch of studies about um, inequity in the media uh, along race and gen gender lines. And they have looked at the representation of uh, older people in the media. And so they've looked at any parts on broadcast, cable, and I believe in the movies of anybody over 40. And in each category, approximately 73 to 75% of those roles are male. Yeah. I mean, even, yes, I remember reading that. I was trying to thumb, thumb through my copy of the book, Susan, <laughs> while I was listening to see if I could find it. But I have so many dog-eared pages and things <laughs> underlined here. It's not, it's not helping. But something also um, that, that you were writing about was that even commercials that are aimed at older women, because there's a, a whole section where it was, I, it, there were funny moments, but it also made me feel a bit depressed, like about thinking about big pharma and how these commercials are are aimed at, at folks like this aspirational aging, um, but how the, the women in many of these commercials even are like much younger um, than what the the age is supposed to be representing, even in a commercial for some malady. Right. I, um, there were some parts of this book I really had fun with. I mean, I had, I had fun with most of it, but, um, I really had fun with the big pharma part and, uh, and I've gotten good, good feedback on the big pharma part. I've also gotten great feedback on the anti-aging industrial complex part, which we can talk about later, but yes. big pharma. So, you know, we're the only country besides New Zealand that allows direct to consumer advertising by, by prescription drug companies. That was mind-blowing to me that yeah. we were like, yeah. And, and why? Because, you know, you, the reason for that prohibition is you don't want people, you know, being persuaded by some commercial and then going to their doctor who may know a lot more about the drug, its side effects, and going and saying, can I get this drug? It, it looks like on television, you know, it looks like it works and why can't I have it? And then the doctor has to say, well, you can't have it because, you know, X percent have liver failure, you know, we're both laughing, but this, yeah, this yeah. is like pretty serious. Yeah. And some of these big pharma, you know, uh, ads and, and products have had to be yanked off the market because of terrible side effects. But so big pharma, uh, basically begins to lobby in the 1980s and 90s to be able to do direct, uh, direct to consumer advertising and they win. And Big Pharma actually spends much more money on marketing than they do on research and development. They say that they need to do this advertising to support research and development, which is a lie because they spend tons more tons more money on marketing, including television ads, magazine ads, and shilling to doctors than they do on R&D. 
But to get back to the commercial. So but there, that is such <laughs> an important point. I'm so glad because that was one of the shocking moments in, in our mm-hmm. prime for me as well. Like yeah. something like that. It's that, that it, it's unconscionable. It is. And, you know, the AMA wants those ads taken off the air. But it will never happen, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> because if you watch the nightly news, or if you watch CNN, Fox, or MSNBC, or the Weather Channel, uh, you will see that Big Pharma and advertising to older people owns the all, owns all of them. Because television viewers viewership skews older. So in between the reverse mortgage ads and, you know, the ads for hearing aids, etc., you'll find these big pharma ads. Oh, and let's not forget the I fell down and I can't get up ads. Terrible. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, This poor Mrs. Fletcher always lying on the floor and not being able to get up. And so the big pharma ads try to do something a little bit different. They uh, seek to show older people uh, doing you know, exciting, aspirational things, kayaking, you know, sailboarding, playing basketball, playing guitar. Of course, all of those are men. <laughs> the women are out buying radicchio and, you know, oh, right. and, and playing with their grandchildren. That's but they a try, popular one. <laughs> it's very popular. And so they show these aspirational images of having a, a rich, fulfilled life um, as a way to get you to engage with a commercial, which is about some drug that you may or may not know anything about, and to get you to look at these beautiful pictures of, you know, a 70-year-old couple nuzzling each other, right? (laughs) Um, Or, uh, you know, kayaking or whatever, having a blast, while the voiceover is like, Side effects may include yeah. violent diarrhea, yeah. liver failure, <laughs> hives, bleeding, out of, your eyes. bleeding yeah. out of your eyes, loss of hearing, oh, and death. Um, <laughs> That's always at the end, too, yeah. You'd think yeah. they'd sandwich it in a little more, but anyway. you, you would. You know, and Saturday Night Live and other shows have made fun of these ads, which they well deserve. Um, but But they still work, it, and because of the sheer yeah. number of them, right, that people are... Yeah, and they still they still equate getting older with being sick. Yes, they still equate getting older with a barrage of ailments, many of which we have not heard of, and many of which afflict only say two percent of the population. But that equation between getting older and being sick and needing these drugs to have that happy aspirational, psychically infused life that you're seeing on television, that those drugs are the agents for that. And that is what I find uh, creepy and annoying and worth making fun of. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, amen to that. I can see why you had a long running column called Backtalk. (laughs) (laughs) I did. Well, you know, I do I do want to get to the um the anti-aging industrial complex too to um to talk about that chapter but really quick like a, a small tangent that's related to in these times again. I was I was looking at some of the 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 longer pieces you wrote and saw one from the 9th of September 2019 um which was titled 
Want to fix the debates? Shut down the Trump-style theatrics. Yeah. So you wrote that in 2019, Susan. Sigh. Yeah. And then we had this most recent, I should say, because we're, we're taping this on the 2nd of October, 2020. So we on Tuesday, we had a, the most recent debate. Yes, an excrescence. Um, you know, there have been so many proposals about how to handle these debates and varying ones, including not having preening journalists do it, but have a, a panel of maybe experts, academics, you know, uh, people who are informed about issues like, say, climate change or, you know, whatever the topic might be. Uh, there has been, now this is not true for Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace uh, I believe is still hanging his head in shame over his utterly incompetent, inept handling of that debate. But uh, there have been in the past journalists, you know, especially when there's several of them showboating and, you know, really trying to uh, puff up their chests when they're asking questions. We need that like a hole in the head, right. but, you know, but the other thing that has been proposed and is being bandied about now and that I did write about is shut the damn mic off when it, the person's turn is up. Yes. Just do it. Such you know, a, such a simple it's suggestion. Really, it's really easy. <laughs> I don't know what they're going to do uh, now. Of course, the next two debates are a bit up in the air because they, Mike Pence has tested negative as of now. Uh, but where will he, will he still be negative three, four days from now? We don't know that. We don't know if the vice presidential debate will happen. We don't know if the next presidential debate will happen because Trump is supposed to quarantine for what, 10 to 14 days. So we, we don't know. Everything's up in the air now. But uh, the since uh, Wallace did make, um, you know, a few, uh, I would say, ineffectual, inept attempts to really rein Trump in. And Trump was determined, absolutely determined, to talk over Biden and Wallace. There's only one solution. You say to you, you've got two minutes. And then you shut the mic mm -hmm. yeah. because you can't have people talking over each other. Yes. Some, somehow some, you are right, Susan. Okay. Now <laughs> let's, let me take us away from this. Let's go. Um, uh, actually let's, let's jump to Maggie Coon, um, of the gray Panthers. She definitely seems like a heroic, um, model that was out there. Um, some decades ago. Oh, she was a force of nature. She was really something. You know, she she had been uh, a feminist and an activist for much of her life. And she, in 1970, she was forced to retire from a job that she loved because there was mandatory retirement age there. And the mandatory retirement age for most jobs was 65. And she was really angry because she wanted to keep working. So she decided to fight back. Now she formed a group and I can't even re reproduce their name. It was like this incredibly clunky, like concerned citizens against something <laughs> or other, you know, and it was a, a DJ who said, 
oh, these, these, they, they're militant. They're like the Black Panthers. Let's call them the Gray Panthers. And she loved that. So that's the name they stuck with. <laughs> and uh, Maggie Kuhn sought to shatter every stereotype that she could about older people, and especially older women. And there was a prevailing theory in gerontology at that time called disengagement theory. And disengagement theory meant that once people hit 65 or maybe even younger, they should disengage from society. They should go away. They should separate themselves, go play shuffleboard and bingo. And that was best for them and best for society. And this drove Maggie Kuhn wild. And um, she hated this notion that older people should be segregated from younger people. And in fact, the motto of the Grey Panthers was age and youth in action. Yes. And she felt that intergenerational alliances were absolutely crucial to social change. And so she had this big house in Philadelphia and she shared it. It was a multi-generational house and she shared it with young people, some in their 20s, uh, that she labeled Panther Cubs. <laughs> and uh, they were united together in things that were not only about older people, but a, a, one of their big issues was universal government subsidized health care you know, for everyone back in the 1970s. Yes. They were also for affordable housing. Uh, they, uh, her group was, she was a very dedicated anti-racist and actually the Black Panthers out in Oakland and Berkeley did do some partnerships with the Black Panthers That's around awesome. health, around health clinics yes. for older people. So she ended up <clears throat> becoming a national figure. She was on Johnny Carson four times. <laughs> she was on the Phil Donahue show, Good Morning America. She was all over the media. By the late 70s, she was traveling 100,000 miles a year, giving over 200 talks a year. And um, the, the week before she died, um, ABC News named her the person of the week. And, in, and she was also named one of the most 25 influential women in the country. So, she, and the other thing she did that was great, she and the uh, mostly female Panthers organized a media uh, watchdog organization. And they started watching television and tracking how older people were or were not uh, represented in commercials and the television shows. And then they wrote these scathing letters to network executives <laughs> about why are you depicting uh, people like this is so insulting and so degrading. And they did, they got some of those uh, depictions removed and Maggie Kuhn did not miss a trick. She saw a yogurt commercial that featured people of different generations eating whatever brand yogurt it was. And notice that the younger people were eating strawberry or peach, and the older people were eating prune yogurt. Oh. <laughs> and she she pointed that out, and you know she actually got Claude Pepper, who was a representative from Florida, to hold congressional hearings where they hauled in network executives on the negative representation of older people in the media. That was Maggie Kuhn. She's a badass. I love her. I love her. And yeah. yes, and um and it, it makes me just also wish, Susan, that it 
she doesn't stand out as such like a like sort of a revolutionary figure sort of like how I think of Grace Lee Boggs and like I wish that there would be like it was there's just was more of more of us women out there doing this um talking back or (laughs) writing these these scathing and well-observed letters (laughs) about yogurt even they did such great stuff and i actually wrote a piece about her for the times that came out in the sunday review a few weeks ago oh and and got um got wonderful emails from people who knew her and people who had worked with her and the great panthers is still going it just you know, wasn't what it was back then. But the problem that we're facing right now is, of course, COVID-19. And it's very hard for us to be out in the streets demonstrating or, you know, meeting face-to-face with with young women, for example, about issues of concern to them and issues of concern to us and how we can partner with them. And, you know, the, the pandemic has made this kind of partner partnering very hard. Nonetheless, when we get to the other side of it, I hope we can begin doing more of that because, you know, we were young women once and the issues of concern to young women are our issues and they're going to be old someday and our issues are their issues. And they all revolve around social justice, whether it's climate change or preserving social security or really trying to crack down on sexual violence and sexual harassment, getting, getting daycare in this country for, for God's sakes, you know, right. uh, getting paid maternity leave for everybody. So, uh, it's, it's hard now. And, you know, in the wake of writing this op-ed, I did get a lot of, well, what can we do? What can we do? And I'm like, Zoom meetings, you know? Yes, to start. <laughs> right? But yes. to start, you know. The intergenerational can... bridge. Like you said, Maggie Kuhn had the intergenerational house. And in, in your book, in our prime, you're saying this is one of the things we have to do, women of all ages, right? With feminism. Yeah, lifestyle. ages and colors and sexualities. Because, you know, what the, these young women are doing today is I think they're uh, much more, many of them are much more radical than we were in and more aware of the intersectional aspects of identity and how a woman of color is treated differently. Well, you know, how say an indigenous, indigenous woman is treated differently from an African-American woman who's treated differently from a white woman who's treated from a gay Asian woman and on and on. And they, you know, they're really, I think, putting our feet to the fire to really in a good way in, in a good in way a absolutely way. in a good and necessary way to say hey you know we want to forge alliances let's let's do it and i i also think black lives matter has been outstanding on this score as yes. well yes yes and but i love that idea that you were saying too like well maybe we could start with these these zoom meetings because in our prime in the book you say maybe um a a couple of like two to three women who are over 50 could (laughs) invite two to three women who are younger (laughs) to, to meet up and 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 to talk but this could happen somehow on zoom too 
potentially. But but looking at the inspiration of the 2017 Women's March, there it's there, right? That was cross-generational, cross-demographics. Oh, it was thrilling. Uh, it was absolutely thrilling to be there because there were women of every color, every age, um, men too, and babies, grandmas, uh, and it was just such a feeling of alliance and solidarity uh, that you get that you get out of a, a march like that. And it was inspiring. And then we, you know, and so people were like, okay, well, so what? What's going to happen? Well, 2018 happened, you know, when you had a record number of women uh, elected to Congress. Yes. And that's one of the things that happened. And now, you know, it's so hard to you know, have our finger on the pulse of everything that's going on. But listen, I know plenty of women in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who are phone banking, who are, of course, giving money, who are sending postcards through the Moms Rising program, who are texting. They are being very active because they not only care about themselves, they care about their daughters, their granddaughters, their grandkids, the future of the planet, the future of our country. And so there has been, I'm, you know, again, in my own circles, which may be narrow, but seeing and learning about a lot of activism among older women within the constraints of COVID. Yes. Yes. Well, Susan, let's talk. You mentioned one of the chapters that was also a lot of fun uh, to write was the chapter on the anti-aging industrial complex. Um, (laughs) So yeah, what about that one was lighting a fire within you? (laughs) Well, look, like, um, like millions of older women, I am seduced by these products, even though I know they absolutely will not work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like Helen Mirren says, right? Yeah, I think you yeah. mentioned in the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and you know, I wanted to dig into how this whole industry has absolutely exploded, and so I start off with a scene in Sephora, of course, which you know has bleacher loads of anti-aging everything. And, you know, it's not enough to put some like moisturizer on. Oh, now you got to put, you know, Retin-A and serums and, you know. Oh, definitely the serums. And they cost pretty penny. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I uh, wanted to dig into the advertising claims, some of which uh, were deemed false by the Federal Trade Commission and had to be yanked. Uh, some of which have absolutely no scientific basis behind them. And so I, you know, I kind of wanted to dig into the way in which the anti-aging industrial complex seeks to seduce us with um, promises that their products are simultaneously made from the most advanced science and chemistry ever, but also include all of these natural uh, features uh, God, what are some of these? You know, uh, I can't. Licorice, licorice, licorice is supposed to, I guess, reduce wrinkles and get get rid of age spots. Certain, yeah, certain floral products. Uh, you know, they've been on a horticultural hunt here to find as many things as possible that they can sell us. So they're telling us their product is natural, 
but it's also been designed by the most advanced scientific principles in the world. And the anti-aging industrial complex has one message. It is defy. Defy aging. You must do it. It is your responsibility to defy aging. Well, I have news for you. Aging is an ineluctable biological process that starts two minutes after you are born and it continues throughout your whole life and you cannot defy it. Um, so we're being urged to take on something uh, and that is a natural process and also we are being urged to hate ourselves and our faces and our bodies because they show evidence of having lived a good long life. And so I, I really did want to have a lot of fun with these claims and the, the, you know, this is carnival Barker stuff that they're selling us. And, you know, it, it, yeah, as Helen Mirren said, well, I probably can't quote on your station what she said, but you know, yeah, you, you can, can read it and I can, I can, <laughs> you I can, can edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> and she said this at a, at a L'Oreal meeting too, you know, with all the executives there. And she's a, one of the faces for L'Oreal. And she says, I know these products don't do f all, but you know, they make me feel good. So <laughs> I, I think that's, you know, that's the attitude we should take. And we're just being urged to pour so much money in, into this. And there's also been a democratization of cosmetic surgery and Botox, which paralyzes. That was so disturbing reading yeah. that part, Susan. Paralyze your face? I don't think so. I think I won't do that. Um, so, yeah, I had a lot of fun with that chapter. And, <laughs> and, 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 and people really liked it because it was funny and, it, you know. And, you know, I also implicated myself in it because it's not like I'm looking down on high and have never been like, oh, I, if I buy that product, will it make me look younger? You know, of course, you know, I've been seduced by that. But of course, that's the emotional side. And then the rational side is like, Susan, you know, that stuff isn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. Yeah. At the end of this chapter, Susan, you said, so yes, I'll probably still go to Sephora where we began the chapter, right? I'll still right. sway to the siren call of rose hips, but not vomit fruit, infuse skin cream. And then but as Mira notes, not for one minute because I think it will do, because I don't. <laughs> and then I think I'll go to Target and see about the low price spread. <laughs> yeah, I do use the low price spread. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I think Nivea is just fine. <laughs> oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. I, I feel like I've read some science on their labels too, but also oh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't have jellyfish, or I don't know. No, and it costs like six ninety nine or something. <laughs> completely, completely. So, Susan, I've I've so loved talking with you today. I I feel like the time has flown. We were talking a little bit earlier about how what can we do, and do you want to talk about a little bit about the the last moment? Because because the book is reinventing the road ahead. So yes. this, this is and this is what women what we what we must do. Well, I will emphasize that this book came out right when COVID exploded. It came out in mid March, and so. All of the things I was prepared to <laughs> go around the country talking about, <laughs> I couldn't. 
uh, and some of the things we can't do, but some of the things we can. Uh, I think older women should be more politically active and not only about issues of concern to us. And I think a lot of women are getting more politically active and not just about issues of concern for us, to us. You know, you saw Jane Fonda getting arrested every Friday around issues of climate change. And, you know, before COVID and in 2018, a bunch of us, we were going door to door for women candidates. We were, you know, activists on their behalf. And we can do that from our homes by phone banking, texting, sending postcards, and if we have it, giving money. It's important for us to have ties with younger women. However that happens, it can happen through family, it can happen through friends, uh, it can happen through friends of friends, where women get together, older and younger women, talk about like, what do you, how do you feel about being a woman in this country? What are the issues that are affecting you? What are you scared about? What, what do we need to change? And there's, look, we've come a long way since 1970, but there's a lot left to do, you know? And I think we should also talk back to gendered ageism when we see it or hear it in the media. And, uh, and I have not been as good about this as I've wanted to, but I love Stephen Colbert. I think he's funny and smart, but Stephen Colbert can sometimes traffic in ageist uh, uh, jokes and comments, and he should stop that. So, uh, you know, there are, and, and I think we should also take pride in our age and not refer to every time we forget something, oh, right. you know, don't call it a senior moment. I know 20 somethings who forget something and they don't call it a senior moment. They call it a brain freeze or they just say, I forgot. And so I'm trying to call these brain freezes and not senior moments. And there are, so there were ways of talking about ourselves and, you know, how people look and how we should look and that I think we should uh, give up. And also, once we can go out into the world again, you know, if you're at a bar and you want to drink and there are five guys sitting alongside of you and you're getting ignored, you know, let the bartender have it. Say, I want, I want my damn drink. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I just think, you know, being a bit more out there and mouthy in whatever, um, you know, ways we can be. But I do think that building alliances and not, and, and yes, with younger people, I'm very, in a very privileged position because I'm, I'm a professor. And like you, you get to interact with young, younger people. Yes. You know, I get to interact with younger people and I, I love college students. I love teaching this age. They're so open and um, vulnerable. And by vulnerable, I mean open to, new ideas, you know, and, and new ways of thinking about the world. And they're so enthusiastic. So, but also we need to form alliances with each other as well. And there's, I mean, there's a lot to take on too, around what's happening to older women. We re social security, Medicare and Medicaid, because, you know, lower, lower income women, these efforts to try to slash this stuff, it's going to deeply impoverish them. And we have to look out for our sisters who are not as privileged as we are. Yes. Susan, thank you so much for talking with me today. 
Oh, thank you so much. You've been, you've been, you're such an enthusiastic conversationalist. It was really fun. It's down to you. you. Thanks so much. I hope we speak again. Me too. Me too. Maybe I'm in love with you 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 I say maybe Maybe I'm in love with Hello, welcome to the Daily Sports Report on uh, WCBN FM Ann Arbor. It is Wednesday, March 24th, so we have a very fun uh, episode tonight. We're mainly going to be discussing basketball, but at all levels of basketball. So we're going to go from uh, NBA to the NCAA to men's and women's. But uh, we have a great show ahead of us, so let's just dive on in. Uh, Let's begin with women's basketball. So yesterday they played against the number three seeded Tennessee uh, Volunteers, and uh, Michigan was the underdog. They were the sixth seed uh, coming into this, or the sixth seed in the tournament. But uh, KBA and uh, the rest of the team had a quite dominant game uh, winning 70 to 55 uh, down in San Antonio. What are your guys' thoughts on that women's basketball game? And do you think they have uh, any juice left in them for this uh, March Madness run? Um, I mean, well, getting to their first Sweet 16 in uh, school history is, I mean, it's a great accomplishment. I mean, and to do it against a, ten- a Tennessee team that, historically has been excellent I mean it's got to feel all the more sweeter um and I I think I mean I don't really see Michigan slowing down anytime soon but the only problem is we unfortunately play uh in the region of probably the best team in the country UConn and with UConn and their, their phenomenal freshman Paige Bukers uh it'll be a tall task to get to them, to get past them, if, of course,